0: I'm extremely excited to announce a brand new sponsor for the Behind the Shield podcast. That is Transcend. Now, for many of you listening, you are probably working the same brutal shifts that I did for 14 years, suffering from sleep deprivation, body composition challenges, mental health challenges, libido, hair loss, etc., Now, when it comes to the world of hormone replacement and peptide therapy, what I have seen is a shift from doctors telling us that we were within normal limits, which was definitely incorrect, all the way to the other way now where men's clinics are popping up left, right and center. So I myself wanted to find a reputable company that would do an analysis of my physiology and then offer supplementations without ramming, for example, hormone replacement therapy down my throat. Now I came across Transcend because they have an altruistic arm and they were a big reason why the 7X project I was a part of was able to proceed because of their generous donations. They also have the Transcend foundations where they're actually putting military and first responders through some of their therapies at no cost to the individual. So my own personal journey so far, filled in the online form, Went to Quest, got blood drawn, and a few days later, I'm talking to one of their wellness professionals as they guide me through my results and the supplementation that they suggest. In my case specifically, because I would transitioned out the fire service five years ago and been very diligent with my health, my testosterone was actually in a good place. So I went down the peptide route and some other supplements to try and maximize my physiology knowing full well the damage that 14 years of shift work has done. Now, I also want to underline, because I think this is very important, that each of the therapies they offer, they will talk about the pros and cons. So, for example, a lot of first responders and shift work, our testosterone will be low, but sometimes nutrition, exercise, and sleep can offset that on its own. So, this company is not going to try and push you down a path, especially if it's one that you can't come back from. So, whether it's libido, brain fog, inflammation, gut health, performance, sleep, this is definitely one of the most powerful tools in the toolbox. So to learn more, go to transcendcompany.com or listen to episode 808 of the Behind the Shield podcast with founder Ernie Colling. This episode is sponsored by New Calm, And as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program Nap, a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also down-regulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download NuCalm, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on NewCalm.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I have an extremely important conversation As many of us are aware, we have a recruitment crisis when it comes to both military and first responders, and there is no better person to bring on as a guest than the Honorable Rob Wilkins, a retired U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant, fitness expert, and former member of the President's Council on Sports, Fitness, and Nutrition under both President Trump and President Biden. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from his own journey into the military, entering the world of bodybuilding, meeting Joe and Ben Weider, writing for Muscle and Fitness, joining the President's Council, physical education, nutrition in our schools, hormone replacement therapy, the Transcend Foundation, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every single five star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 850 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you the Honorable Rob Wilkins. Enjoy. Well, Rob, I want to start by saying firstly, thank you to Brandon Quisenberry for connecting us. I was just talking to him prior to this conversation just to pull out any other areas that he thought I should, um, you know, dig into. And mm-hmm. secondly, I want to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast today.
1: Well, thank you, James. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. I look forward to an engaging conversation. Hopefully, there'll be many points where we have different points of view so that we can battle it out, make it uh interesting for the uh, for the listeners and viewers and um thanks again for this opportunity.
0: Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? Northern
1: Virginia. So we live in Northern Virginia about forty minutes outside of Washington, dc We've been in the uh, DC area since uh, December two thousand and one when I got assigned uh, stationed at the Pentagon um after living fourteen years at a beach environment. so i I was stationed in Sardinia, Italy at a place called Duccia Mamano Air Base. Then I got stationed in Cocoa Beach, Florida at uh, Patrick Air Force Base. And then after 14 years of the beach, the Air Force says, we need to put you somewhere else. uh, And they sent me to the Pentagon. But it's turned out to be my service at the Pentagon and my time at the Pentagon was um, life changing, very educational, and I wouldn't have changed it for the world.
0: So, I'm going to jump ahead for a second, then we'll go to the beginning of your story. But we were talking before we hit record about happiness. Now, I've traveled quite a lot myself, and there's a quote, I forget what it is, a Steinbeck quote, I think. And it talks about, you know, the you want to kill prejudice travel or something like that, you know, and you see the commonalities and you see, you know, the hierarchy of needs being met. Um, You and I discussed that you know, the American dream, and I'm an immigrant to this country, you know, what it used to be and what it's become are two very, very different things. And I would argue that we're probably one of the wealthiest countries on the planet, but I don't think that's matched in the nation's happiness, to be honest. So talk to me about all the places that you've traveled and where, you know, what your perspective is on happiness and wealth.
1: Mm -hmm. Great question. So being in the Air Force, I was fortunate enough to go to about 43 different countries um, from Asia and Europe and Africa. Um, and I found that sometimes the most simplest people with the least were the happiest. So, for example, uh, when I was stationed in Sardinia, Italy, uh, it was very common for us to spend the evenings walking to the village piazza or a plaza and um, just talking and chatting with people and seeing neighbors. And sometimes it's not many words exchange, It's more or less a smile and a, how you doing? And uh, people were really friendly. And if you might know anything about blue zones, Sardinia is a blue zone people live to about 100 years old. So you think, what are the things that they are doing there that we may not be doing here? Our lives are more uh, complex here. Uh, we probably have access to a whole lot more things, but they have spiritual social connection. I think they're in Sardinia. Wonderful, wonderful people, very, very friendly, very open. Um, And so that might be something that we who are under constant bombardment of media from the media, uh, I think there's a a stat that we get about four to 5,000 negative inputs to our brain daily. How do we kind of switch that and change that around to where we're getting more positivity, more inspiration, more motivation, but on a constant basis because consistency is the key. You can be inspired for a day. You can be motivated for a day, but that will go away. But if you're constantly trying to strive to do the best you can to be as happy as you can to live in the moment, to have great experiences, um, I think you will find yourself better off.
0: I saw something on the blue zone. I saw the recent blue zones show that was on. I actually bought the cookbook from that, but there was obviously a more of a focus on the food. And I think um, there's a, a, a certain vegan community behind some of that. And, you know, I'm, or for any any sort of diet philosophy that is going to bring wellness, and and it's funny because carnivore and vegan some of these argue, and the common denominator is removing shitty processed food. That's what they all agree on. They just don't like to talk about it. But when you look at Okinawa, for example, another blue zone, you look at the community, and they laugh, they dance, and they play music, and they 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 laugh like children. It, it's it's so childlike and i think that's what we're missing we're so serious at the moment myself included Mm -hmm. you know it's the woes Mm -hmm. of the world on our shoulders and we've just become so far now so disconnected from that kind of tribal community that i think that we as humans are designed to thrive in that you can have someone feeling chronically depressed in the middle of new york city surrounded by millions of people
1: and they're alone yes you know i often have seen um reports and podcasts and videos of superstars so like my favorite musicians or artists have been prince and michael jackson and i read about both of them often where they were alone they had they had adoring fans all around the world but they were still feeling isolated and um not able to do real connections because do you like me because i'm prince or do you like me because i'm I'm this, this guy who's living in, on this planet with you and we're trying to have these great uh, interactions and we're playing sports and we're going to movies and we're listening to great music and having food and, and looking at art. Um, those are the kind of things that I think we all crave and we all would like as opposed to you know trying to be careful of connecting yourself to someone because they're well-known or famous.
0: To smash the... You know Some of the media rhetoric as well. I posted a video today and I'll be full transparency. I was crying on the couch when I was posting it. And then I got all the bloody hell, James, you're making me cry again comments. But it was a beautiful moment that was caught. Um, You had a police officer who obviously came on scene of a young suicidal and he was a veteran, army veteran, sitting on a bridge. The officer grabs him. Now, for you know again media lens the officer was white the family were black the the young man's dad shows up who's a single dad i mean just sobbing you know and, and he sat the officer sat with the the kid for a while and talked to him and then you know he hugs the father and it was just humanity it was who we actually are and it and it took off i mean loads of people shared it and because that's what we want and that's what we connect with and as you said before if you curate your feed to be divisive and negative, then you know confirmation bias. That's what you're going to get. But if you start following beautiful pages on social media, watch how the world changes in front of you, and you're going to see so much kindness and compassion. Like young teens buying you know their special needs classmate clothes because he, you know he comes from a poor background. Whatever it is, there is so much community and humanity out there. But I don't know why. I'd be interested to get your perspective. It seems like it's a deliberate attempt to to divide and pigeonhole.
1: Mm-hmm. So, as Voltaire said, we must cultivate our garden. And cultivating our garden means, you know, you're you're trying to be around people who are like minded. And I often find from someone holding the door, to someone just recently um, cutting me off, and then they purposely slow down, put their hand out the, the window to say, "My fault." Um, there are a lot more good things happening. I think there's a lot more pleasantries happening, a lot more positive exchanges. Even at the Starbucks uh, I go to, I call my my home office. um, I've seen from time to time people are short a dollar or two dollars, or some young kid doesn't have enough money, and someone's "I got it, no problem." But that doesn't sell. That's that's the more typical experience, I think. Now there are horrific, terrible things happening as well, but I think for the daily. And if things were as bad off as the media, sometimes makes it seem, how could we even go outside our homes uh, and peaceful, you know, peaceful exchanges with people or, or feel like going to the supermarket or to the store because you were thinking you're going to become a victim? So I do think there are a lot of really good things. And I think more and more people are thinking about how can I be a part of making my city, my town, my state, my country better? And maybe just a smile and how are you? That's that's to start because everybody doesn't have resources to go donate to, you know, Toys for Thoughts or to um, help out veterans or to help out homeless. But everyone or most people can at least say, hello, how are you? Have a good day. Hold the door open for someone, things of that sort. And that's, that's the positivity train that we're all going to start to maybe be a part of.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, kindness is free. So, the number of times now, I'm sure, you know, there's people on the side of the road, uh, some, you know, most of whom I'm sure are homeless. And, you know, they're, of course, looking for money, but doesn't mean you can't just roll down the window and talk. And I actually chatted to a, a guy who's a Vietnam vet a couple of days ago, meaning to get some cash out. And I saw him again at the red light. And um he said, Do you have to have any bags? And I got, you know, the, the kind of cloth Publix grocery bags here. And I was like, Yeah, I've got a couple. And I had some a bag of, you know, butt wipes as well. I'm like, why don't you take these two? <laughs> if you are living in the woods, these probably come in handy. Um, but again, I didn't have any cash, but I still was able to interact with this gentleman and hopefully do something positive for him. And I think that's it. You know, you don't have to he's spending money. Like you said, it doesn't have to be a massive donation. How can you just simply interact with someone, just see someone, someone, especially if they're on the side of the street, you know, how many people have smiled and just talked to them in that hour, you know? So right. yeah, I mean, that kindness and compassion, which ironically, I think is taught in a lot of religious buildings. Mm-hmm. We need to refine that as a community. I agree. So starting at the beginning of your journey, then. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings? Mm -hmm. So
1: we have a large family and uh, I'm originally from Linden, New Jersey, born in Newark, New Jersey. And uh, we grew up with um, my grandmom living in one part of town, my other grandmom living in the town next door, aunts all over. So I would be able to ride my bike throughout our town. And every time I needed to use the restroom or get a drink, I had someone to stop by their home and. Oh, I'm just dropping by. Actually, had to go to the restroom, but you know, it was just making it very, very convenient. Lots of cousins uh, that we were around, and um, it was a, a very, very typical uh, childhood experience for my area, Linden, New Jersey. There, uh, some of the friends that I had back when I was 11, 12, 13 years old were still connected through social media, and um, I think what was so normal about what we did is we lived peaceful lives. We didn't really think too much about trouble. We didn't think about guns and knives. And we thought there might be a fight. There might be some kids who disagree, but it's a fight. It's a, it's fist fight. And then afterwards it's done. It's over. And that person and you may become good friends. You know, I think more or less our battles were sport battles, you know, our street against the next street, or our school against another school. And um, the lessons we learned on the playgrounds, I think about being, playing fair and, and being compassionate and, um, and wanting to win, but that's nothing wrong with that. You know, as long as you're not cheating and, and doing something illegal, of course you want to win. You want to be victorious. And you want to brag about our street is the best street in softball or basketball. But I just think that you um, also have learned about communication skills, and you learned that some kids were faster than others. But you tried to pick teams that were fair, and everybody was able to participate. Girls, boys, whatever it was, we didn't think about you can't play because you're this. You can play because you're part of our community and we need another kid on that on that field so that we can have enough to play so it was just a great experience and i think um i wish more people had that experience especially being outside though being out there and just being able to ride bikes and run and climb and do whatever and not really being worried about anything except maybe hitting a ball over in someone's yard who had a mean dog (laughs) And thinking we held up the game because we can't get our dog, we can't get our ball out of Mister Anderson's uh, Mister Anderson's yard there because his dog might bite us. But yeah, those those were good memories.
0: There's a rhetoric about kids these days, you know, with eye rolling. When I look back, and this is why I try and you know set the two-sided conversation of ownership but also environment yes of course you know to eat well to exercise that takes the individual to make choices that are right but it's the environment that bolsters the good choices you know so i grew up on a farm you know i literally did farm work i mean i'd come in tired from school the next day and the teachers thought i'd been up watching tv and i hadn't i mean lambing you know or baling hay or whatever it was so I would never then go, oh, what's wrong with kids today? Because how many kids got to do that? You know, I was so fortunate to have food that grew in the ground, you know, and and we had animals and all kinds of things. So a very unique environment. So now you look fast forward to 2023, especially suburban and urban kids, they don't have that kind of environment. So So when you look back at your childhood, what were the elements that set you up to naturally be able to move and eat well back then?
1: Well, I think uh, one of the things I remember my father doing, uh, we would see McDonald's or Burger King and say, can we go? Can we go? And uh, I might have been 10, 11, 12. He would take the stairwell and he was like, he would pretend like the car won't turn into the parking lot. And he'd be like, oh, I'm trying to turn and it won't go. And I was like, (laughs) come on, you know what you're doing. But he's like, well, we can go home and make that, you know. And we just didn't have a lot of fast food. I I just don't remember. I think, um, hmm pizza might have been about it for the most part. Uh, Sometimes Kentucky fried chicken, but we cooked at home. And uh, because I was a Cub Scout and a Boy Scout, I knew how to cook myself. And my mom would pay me if I cooked dinner while they were at work. So when they got home, if things were um, prepared, meals were prepared, I was paid for it. So it was a way of helping out, you know, that while she and my dad were at work and busy, when they got home, things were prepared and ready so that they didn't have to stop and do it. So I just thought, it's normal. That's what most of my friends did. That's what most of us did in the seventies and in the eighties. You know, it was just a different experience. Everyone had a little bit more um, maybe responsibility and and a part of making the home um, run efficiently. It wasn't just related or just uh, on the, all the shoulders of the mom because it's mostly moms who have to do everything. I, in my personal experience, uh, I think though, by, by spreading it out and, and it also empowered me like, I don't need you to cook. I can cook myself. And so when I moved or when I joined the Air Force and moved overseas, I was prepared. I knew how to do laundry. I knew how to cook. I knew how to clean. I knew how to take care of myself. Whereas sometimes you find some of your um, your airmen or your fellow uh, fellow vet or fellow military member didn't know those things. And so you can teach them and share your experience with them. But you can't help or hurt people by preparing them like right now. Or any teenagers who don't know how to do their laundry and cook and and do those type of things, I think it only um, would help you and make you more independent by learning those things and doing them
0: yourselves. Absolutely. I had the same thing. I mean, we were, you know, I think they, what they call it latchkey kids in in some way, but on a farm. But yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, a lot of times the parents were, were cooking food, but we were expected to as well. And if we didn't cook, then we did all the dishes and all that stuff, too. But again, so you're given these these skills Someone on the show, and I can't remember who it was. It might have even been Dan Bornstein, um, made it a really kind of interesting observation as well. When I was little, we had all these playing fields that you just literally walked onto and you just started playing sports. And then even the local sports center, you know, to swim was probably, you know, two pounds or a pound 50 or, you know, it was it was very low barrier to entry to access the facilities. When you look at the kind of elitism that we have in a lot of sports now, we have beautiful facilities, but you've got to rent out the whole baseball field or the whole football field. So what have you seen as far as that, the uh, the access to sports and exercise for the average person?
1: It's becoming more and more difficult. Um, pay to play is very, very difficult. So I know the President's Council of Physical Fitness, Sports and Nutrition, it's one of their initiatives where they're trying to lower the barriers of um, access because there is so much research that indicates that kids who play who are physically active do well socially they do well with their mental health they do great in the classroom, they belong to a community so that social connection is there but for some of them depending on where they live they don't have access to the field uh, and, and and I think that could be very um disheartening in some aspects because you can imagine as a young kid you're holding on to the gate but you can't cross that gate. you see it it's right there. But because you don't have $10 or $5 to get on the field, you can't play. And so I also know that, you know, for socially, uh, economically challenged families, it's more and more difficult because they have to make big decisions about do they pay bills and provide food or do they give money to their kids to play sports? And sometimes, you know, people are making really, really difficult decisions because if their kid is able to get um, noticed by a university or a school and get a scholarship that can change the life projection or that can change the whole family dynamic to where this kid, usually boys, um, are going to be able to help their family. But I also think what a bunch of pressure that kid is under because if they don't do well and they don't make it, you know, their family has put all these resources that they don't have into, uh, into them uh, having the best ability or the best chance to make it. So How how we can do better? um, I think our our elected officials, our elected leaders, our community officials, our business leaders, and all those who have access or those who can donate should help because um, we're going to pay one way or the other. You know, so many folks tell share the story of how the Boys and Girls Club or the YMCA helped them stay out of trouble, helped them stay out of gangs. So paying now is cheaper. If we pay later, that means There's probably uh, some kind of incident with the law. It could be jail. It could be prison and all the costs associated with that. And um, also, you know, most people I do think are good people and want to do the right thing. And so if we can give them access and abilities to do something related to sports or fitness, and it doesn't mean they have to play. Maybe they can be a participant. Maybe they can be um, the manager of the team, but that's the community they they belong to. You know, to belong somewhere is where I think a lot of people – striving right now to be part of something. so we just have to keep trying um because giving up is not an option. we just have to figure it out and that figuring that out is different depending on where you live. you know living here in Northern Virginia maybe it's a little bit easier and um, but maybe living in some parts of um, Vermont or North Dakota where it's some more rural areas it could be a little bit more difficult but there is a way I'm sure.
0: Well, I want to get to some, you know, observations and and solutions when it comes to the schools. But before we do, because of, you know, the incredible journey that you've had, as far as Mm -hmm. observing the nation's wellness and fitness, and obviously within the military, what are you seeing as far as the trend for our young people's school age?
1: The trend is that less and less are physically active. Physical inactivity is increasing, um, and especially amongst young girls, um, why more and more people don't play, I'm I'm sure there are many reasons. Some people, no matter what, they just don't want to participate. Some, it has to do with resources. Some, it has to do with their coaching. Uh, some, with transportation. If they can't get to the field, then they can't play. So um, that's why I never like to think there's just one answer to any of this, because the issues and the problems are multiple. So there has to be multiple answers. It might take, for instance, when I was playing basketball, At Linden High School in New Jersey, Mr. Aikens, the basketball coach, drove five or six of us home in his car. This is our coach who didn't live in the same neighborhood, took the time to make sure that if we're under his watch and coaching with, you know, he's our coach, he's going to make sure we get home. So he drove us home. So sometimes it takes a community of parents who are able to participate and help other families and other kids who might not have the same access to make sure that they are able to get to and from. Um, the field, the court, uh, the pitch, the the course as safely as possible.
0: So an observation that I've made many times on the the show with people such as yourself, you know, athletes, coaches, et cetera, is coming from the UK. We certainly in my era didn't play sports at a super high level unless you were a gifted, I mean, really football player. That was the only one that really paid any money. Um, So the rest of us just played sports. And then what you saw is that after we graduate high school, senior school, we call it there, people keep playing sports. Then I moved to the US and and I always say this kind of tongue in cheek. I kept hearing the same Uncle Rico story, you know, the same, I I was going to be the next quarterback, you know, major league, whatever, if it wasn't for my knee, my shoulder. And these are, you know, mid twenties, early thirties. And they're deconditioned, you know, they're overweight um, and again, we were talking before here hit record about identifying with your disease, with your injury. And what I've realized now, the last, you know, especially the last seven years of really speaking to some of these great minds is in our schools in the US, high schools and, and colleges especially, we seem to really squeeze out performance from these young men and women, but more often than not at the expense of their wellness. So with that lens, you know, what are you seeing as far as... um Playing versus winning when it comes to our school system?
1: Great question. So um here's a guy, Tom Ferry. He's with an organization. I don't remember the name of the organization, but they they do lots of research on youth sports and fitness and the social and mental aspects of it. And some of his research indicated that kids or youth prefer to have fun. That is their number one reason for participating in, in sporting activities, where coaches number one reason for them is to win. So um, for kids, I think it's more down like in the 30s or 40th 40th reason why they participate as winning. There's all these other things, but fun, social connection, being with their friends. Those are all more of the reasons why they decide to play or why they want to play. And when you have a coach, now I understand it once you get to the um, collegiate level and to the pro level, wins and losses means paychecks. It means uh, job security. But when you're six and seven years old, so many kids are specialized already, especially in the U.S. They have golf golf uh, coaches, and they have swing coaches, and they have nutritionists, and they have exercise physiologists working with them at six and seven years old. I mean, at that time, you I think that social connection, personally, is more important. Can you play well? Can you play in this sandbox with other kids, um, let alone having a, a, a perfect swing at seven years old? So i think that we have to try to find ways to uh incorporate more fun more participation and um having the ability to be on the field because lots of kids are looking for their opportunity to um excel do well but we have to call their number we have to give them that chance to do well yeah
0: yeah i mean you hear that the term bench warmers you know a kid wants to play let's say football for example and then you know they don't so what kind of sport is that if you just sit watching the game the whole time? And we were talking before we hit record. You, you kind of mirror the same kind of perspective of me. I, I'm nauseated by that whole participation trophy conversation sure. because I've never yeah. seen a group of people given a trophy for doing absolutely nothing. No work. I haven't in my whole life. Right. But that's the way it's presented. And you it's from people that grew up in this system where if you're not winning, you're losing. What is your perspective on this conversation as far as discouraging young people for simply playing games and sport? So
1: I think, as you just said, if you're, if you're there, you're active, you're moving, you're sacrificing your time to come to this practice, to come to this game, to come to this activity, especially if you're not going to play. Like sometimes um, the 12th player is the most important player. Because that's the guy or girl that we all know that they're not going to get in the game for the most part unless someone's sick, someone's injured. There's a the the scores are so lopsided. Either you're winning big score or losing by a big score, but they're there, and they often are the best cheerleaders too. So that child also needs to be recognized. As I as I mentioned to you, having participation medals for some kids, it's better than having an A on their report card. It means so much to them. So. While at one time I wasn't in favor of everyone getting a a ribbon or a medal, I see it differently now. As I think the older I get, and hopefully the wiser I am, I think you never know what someone's going through, and you never know that them being part of the team is a win, um, them having that uniform is a win, but having that ribbon or saying, gosh, I was there, I got that trophy too, or... That, that might be something I remember when they're 45, 50 years old, because it's the time maybe they weren't rejected. You know, often like you, you're the last guy we pick or you're not good enough to be on the team, you've been cut, but could you imagine you're that kid, you happen to be on a team that wins the local, the state, the regional, the divisional championship, and you are part of that team forever, you're a champion. That's pretty cool
0: hundred percent. I've made mm-hmm. made the observation. I've done, I love mud runs. So, you know, Spartans mm-hmm. and tough mudders, and, you know, you go through all that grueling and what do you get at the end? Participation trophy. You get a, a medal right. and a beer, you know, it's the same thing. I watch and my it means train so much through. to you. Oh, it does. Yeah. yeah. And how many yes, people have right. got, I mean, the, the London marathon, the Boston marathon, they don't just give the winner a medal and then, so, sorry, you didn't win. <laughs> There's lots of people that have participation trophies For doing phenomenal things, but that is it. You showed up. You put the work in. We're recognizing that, and so that we really need to, you know, let this go. If there's some people out there that the kids show up and never do a day's training and get medals, well, of course that's wrong. But I, I haven't seen that. I've seen lots of kids show up and drill for their sport once, twice a week, and then play a game every Saturday or Sunday, and only one team can win. You know, so I mean, the World Cup, we all watch everyone else play. Only one gets to actually hold the cup, but they all get recognized and you know, get, uh, I'm sure, some sort of trinket that shows that they participated. So having this philosophy that if you're not going to win, then why even bother, I think is so detrimental to the nation's health.
1: But you win by showing up because that's life. You know, some days you're not going to feel good and you still go to work because you show up. Some days you're going to be in classroom and you don't feel good and you have a headache or you have, you know... Monster hay fever or something, but you showed up and you learned that on the pitch. You learned that on the court. I don't, I have a sprained ankle, but I still went to practice. I showed up. So when you get to work and when your boss gives you this tough assignment, when you feel like quitting, you're like, when I was eight years old, I learned a lesson. You don't quit. And so I, I think that's the lesson sports brings to you, you know, that those lessons you'll be able to continue to use way into your 50, 60. 70. For the rest of your life actually yeah don't quit you show up never ever 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 quit now you might fall but you don't quit
0: i, I bought my my sister excuse me bought my son a poster for his bedroom and it's banksy the street artist from england and it says if you get tired learn to rest not quit i mean that's a mic drop moment it says that's everything you know what i mean it's good you have to take a knee sometimes mental health physical health whatever as long as you get back up again.
1: Right. And that goes back to what I mentioned earlier about being consistent because you're not going to be inspired and motivated every day. But if you're consistent, you consistently say, I won't quit. I will take a knee. Um, I'm not going to be able to push through today, but tomorrow you've you've um you've released a tiger in me because you kept thinking that I won't do something or I can't do something. So sometimes, you know, when telling someone that they won't, they can't, they're not... um not able to participate you inspire them and motivate them and make them consistent you make them say I'll show you because um you know we all have lots of stress and lots of struggles that we're going through right now but sometimes if you can just make somebody's day a little bit better and is it going to the field to the court to the uh golf course for two hours it allows them to get away from all the other madness for a while go do something that's enjoyable something that's fun then they have to come back to the reality, but at least they've had that mental break for two to three hours to um get the strength to get to the next to get through the day or to the next
0: day. Absolutely. Well, I want to hit a couple more topics while we're on school, then we'll go back to your specific timeline. But I think this is important because this is where we change the nation's health, is, is with our children. I had a great guy, Doug Orchard, on the show, who wrote who made a documentary, The Motivation Factor. And it was a high school in California that had basically kind of taken an idea from the Russians and implemented a PE program. And they had almost like a belt system, but it was colored shorts. And the whole school did this and they did it in teams. So, you know, you, you started whatever it was, I forget now, white shorts, and then you can test, you know, and each time each tier is, is more and more taxing. The top one was, was crazy. It was like a three mile partner carry and seven pegboard ascents and all kinds of stuff. So the, you know the the top tier guys all could be muscle and fitness covers any day these eighteen year olds and you think about it the the band or the mathematician or whatever the kid that didn't really like doing it very much was still in great shape. Um you had the Presidential Fitness Award, you had all these incentives back then. And I'm as a father now I've got a, a bonus boy of twenty two and then my son is uh sixteen. I've watch the kind of the devolution of PE since I've been here for 22 years. Talk to me about, you know, that whole area of physical education in schools. You know, where are we nationally and where do you think we need to go to to possibly refine what we had a few decades ago?
1: Sure. So these are my own personal thoughts. These are no official government thoughts. But I always think that PE is just like uh, when you went back to ancient Roman times and Greece times, the Agora was the place where you learned the spiritual, the mental, the physical, and the educational was all in this one building, but they all were part of, of an education. The spiritual was important just as the physical part, as the learning about math and English, math and the language, um, whatever they were learning. We've really um, gotten away from the physical aspect, I think. And often physical education is the first program that's cut. So the things that I personally think we need, which is art, music, and physical education are often the programs that are cut. And I think that, you know, there's been some research, there was a, a place in Illinois, uh, forgive me, if I forgot the name, but where this um, PE teacher had these kids um, do PE prior to going to math or their math classes. And he found that their scores dr- dramatically improved. And um, there's lots of research, again, that shows that those kids who are who are physically active, they do better in classrooms. But if you're physically active, you probably will be better in band because you have better stamina, you're, you have, you're in better shape. You can march longer. If you have that uh, physical education part, you're probably better in math because you have, again, better stamina. You have fresher blood going to your brain because you've been physically active. And so um, ASICS has done research about um, those who are gamers who exercise or are physically active are better gamers. Again, they're able to last longer. They have clearer thoughts. They're just more physically, their physical stamina is better than those who aren't. So getting back to classrooms and schools, I think that um, it should be almost, I think it should be mandatory. Now, what needs to change, I'm not sure, but I do know that physical activity is important for the health of the nation because this, the um, associated healthcare costs of not being active, of being obese or overweight having diabetes, uh, heart issues, at such young ages, we can't sustain these costs. So maybe you look from the backwards in. We need to cut our costs. Exercise cuts costs. Eating better cuts costs. Social connection improves mental health. So maybe if we can start doing those things, um, we will find that the solutions are going to be tough, Um and they won't work every way the same way. So what you do here in Northern Virginia might not be able to do in L.A., but you find what works in L.A. You find what works in Northern Virginia because you know kids are kids, basically. Kids are just, they're great They're great teachers to us. They don't have a lot of the hangups and the issues we have. So maybe uh, I once was at a meeting and um, for the President's Council of Physical Fitness, Sports and Nutrition, and one of the panelists um, was a young kid. And he said, if it's about us, include us. So if we're looking for answers and solutions to kids in physical activity and sports, maybe we should form these commissions and these committees where kids from all different backgrounds and abilities are part of the reason or part of the solution. You know, they have a um, they have a council where they have positions of authority and positions of of influence where they kind of tell us what will work for them. Because at my age, the things that I would want to do maybe might not work right now uh, or be something that kids want to do. But if they tell us what what motivates, inspires, and we'll get them to move, then let's do what works for them, not what works for Rob. What works for that kid is more important than what my ego might say or what I would want to do. So, including people that we're trying to affect would be very, very impactful and, and powerful.
0: Doug was talking about how the grades went up, but also bullying went down. You know, you, you're having this shared suffering now, and these kids are all working together in teams. So that was that was amazing. I also had a guy from Finland who's an educator and now he tours the world talking about the Finnish system because if you look at the scores usually they're they're right at the top and again it was looking at the holistic child and they have a lot of recess they have shorter days and yet their grades are better than than here and if you look I think internationally I don't think us or the UK or even you know top 5 so you know, looking at some of these less is more programs and more holistically at the child, and more play and more fun in learning, rather than standardised testing and eliminating PE. You know, maybe it's time to to have some humility and ask some of these countries what they're doing so well.
1: Right. So there is Miss um, Amy. She's a teacher, and she's um, she teaches a uh, I think it's kindergarten or first grade, and she has participated in a program called the Daily Mile for a few years. And um, the Daily Mile is where every day these children walk a mile. And um, maybe in the beginning, it might be tough for some of them because they have not. But by a certain point, probably four or five, six weeks in, everybody's able to do it because they've done it every single day. And Miss Amy also talked about how these kids see nature now. They start talking about bugs and insects and weather and other things that they're learning as they're walking, but they also start developing deeper relationships with the fellows or the other uh, young boys and girls that are part part of their group. So, for example, if a certain kid's not feeling so good today, one kid can say to Miss Amy, I think something's wrong with so-and-so because they're not acting the right. Now, these kids, again, are six, seven years old, but they have that social connection and they feel strong enough and compassionate enough to go tell the teacher that they think something could be up. And They write me uh, cards and letters a few times a year, and it's just so inspiring just to see that how being physically active has brought this joy to the teacher. She said she learns just as much from the kids and the things they say that she's able to teach them, but they're moving and and they're experiencing life besides just sitting in the classroom. There's so many different ways to learn, but they're getting their exercise in while learning, while making social connection, and, you know, Part of me is very interested in seeing the research and how these kids move on because having that um, foundation of physical activity in in sport, does it help you continue that as you move forward? Um, Do you continue to do it even if your school doesn't provide it? And so I, I think that would be some great research, like what keeps people in the game? What keeps them on the field? What keeps them physically active, especially when it's not mandatory? But I do know, um, it seems Miss Amy her kids have a joy that was brought to them by this connection of physical activity, sports, and this program called The Daily Mile.
0: I can, this is an N of one, but I can give you a parent's um, perspective. My son's elementary school, which I loved, did the morning mile, same exact thing. Um, And I would volunteer all the time. So I got to see it firsthand. And for years, I was known as Ty's dad. I never got to have my own identity.
1: Right, right. <laughs> but that's the proudest title
0: you can have. Exactly, it is. It absolutely. Yeah, with all is. the
1: titles, dad is it. That's the best.
0: Exactly, and you know, so very, very proud. And I do like the, um, the you know, the work. I forget what they call it, career day. You know, when I bring all my fire gear in and talk to the kids, and it was kind of cool with that because I talk to them about kindness and compassion, and they're thinking of me. I was just going to talk about badass fires. Like, no, you to be a good firefighter, you have got to be this, this, and these are actionable things for an elementary school kid. But I watched. You know, kids that were somewhat deconditioned walk, and I watched kids get competitive, and a lot of them would run, and they got, you know, tokens for every 100 um, laps, which I think was a, I don't think it was a mile for 100, but anyway, however many it was, every mile they get a token, but I'll give you, you know, an observation of one, obviously, I'm an athlete, so he got to see that as well, however, we got to middle school, and he ended up joining the cross-country team, and then went to high school, and he was in the cross country and then joined track so obviously the running but also what was really interesting their pe program was called hope in met in high school and about three weeks in he's like dad i just signed up for jrotc i was like oh okay because we did the the parent day and he had no interest when we when we walked in on the first day he's like yeah i did pe it's been three weeks we haven't done anything just watched movies so and i was like all right beautiful so i think that is you know A testament to that baseline, of course, as a parent, but also the school. Like In that, they had jump rope for heart, which is the thing that elementary school would do, the morning mile, and then all the sports that you play when you're a young child. And he enjoyed being outside and playing. So when it came to, oh, I don't have to do any exercise in PE, he was like, well, this is bullshit. (laughs) He he changed to, to JROTC because they were getting out there. So like I said, N of one, but I mean, as a parent's perspective, I thought absolutely it's partly attributed to that.
1: And uh, before I forget, I want to go back when we talked about schools, that they are some things they're not doing. What I want to remind um, your listeners is there are some things that they are doing. So When COVID happened, what we did not realize, or I don't think a lot of people realize, there are some hidden heroes in the physical education department. There are gym teachers and gym coaches and physical education folks who have been preparing our um, military recruits or or future recruits for for basic training. Many people didn't know they were doing this. So what these uh, phys ed teachers have been doing is for probably decades, they're meeting Military recruits or potential recruits before school or after school on their own time without being paid, and running them through the courses, running them through the drills, making sure that these um, young men and women are prepared and know what to expect, at least from the physical fitness standpoint, when they get to the basic training. So when COVID happened, we found that how come the numbers decreased of those kids who were really ready to get into basic? How come there were more more skeletal injuries? How come they just weren't able to get up that next day or their bodies weren't able to get them to the third day of consistent physical fitness uh, training. They weren't in school. So these PE teachers who have had this amazing, um, uh, I guess um, reach to these kids and making sure that they were ready, they weren't, they weren't able because schools were closed. And so, you know, out there, there's a whole bunch of uh, PE teachers and coaches and all. And so just thank you for what you've been doing because um, most people don't know about it. But now that I know about it, I just want to say thanks. And we appreciate what you do, getting military readiness, national security, recruits ready for this demanding role that they're going to play part of and protecting our freedom. So uh, continue it, please. Thank you for what you're doing and uh, salute to you.
0: Absolutely. Well, that's a really important point to underline is there are so many great teachers out there. It's just us fighting for them to work in an environment that allows them to thrive. So you've got a passionate teacher in history and them to be able to teach history and get kids excited rather than, well, this is going to be on the, the FSA or whatever standardized test these kids are being groomed for. So yeah, supporting our PE teachers and our music teachers and our painting teachers and all these other incredible humans that are basically raising our children while we're at work. Um, to give them the tools and support
1: more difficult than ever being a teacher right now. There's just so much on them, you know, where they're dealing with a lot of uh, social anxiety and the mental stress that many folks are under, not just the kids, also the parents, you know, there's, you know, when you have the teacher, teacher, uh, the teacher, parent conference, some of those interactions are probably um, pretty tough, you know, uh, not all of them are giving the teacher the apple. Um I'm, I'm sure there's some tough conversations happening. but again for those who are who are doing what what their passion is and what their love is which is educating and teaching, thank you for what you're doing because our nation needs it. that's a uh, they're out front, but they're often hidden heroes. you know there there are certain people like um, I always say celebrities are cool, you know, sports stars are cool, but when the nation gets in trouble, we're not calling Tom Cruise. We're calling James, we're calling military folks, we're calling our teachers and firefighters and, and doctors and, and nurses to help us get through that tough time. You know, when um, when there's these hurricanes and, and, and fires and unfortunately mass shootings, we're looking to the people who are running to the danger when everybody else is running from the danger. So it's important to thank them and to recognize them for what they do because they want to run too. I mean, I, I saw uh, there were the fires in Hawaii and some of the firefighters, they knew their homes were burnt up, but they didn't leave. They were consistent sh- consistently showing up because that's what they had to do. So it's important to say thank you. that uh, That's all they want because they're not looking for a lot of limelight. As you know, you're a firefighter, first responder. You've saved people before. You don't need to be in front of the television screens and a bunch of medals. you did it because that's what you want to do. So I think uh, for all those, and I think this is your core audience, those type of people who are um, they're givers. They're givers. Thank you, givers. Thank you.
0: So I want one more area of the school, then we'll move back to your timeline, nutrition. So another thing, again, I could look down my nose and be like, what's wrong with these kids? Why don't they know what vegetables are and everything? Well, I grew up on a farm in England. How dare I You know, talk for... Someone in, you know, a street that only has a bodega and a liquor store in Brooklyn somewhere, you know. So the schools are an amazing opportunity for us to teach kids about food and also feed them healthy food. What we have seen, though, and even Jamie Oliver, the British chef, tried to, you know, make a dent when they did it. I think he did it in the UK, but he tried to do it here as well and show that even for the same budget, you can actually make real food. And we're not asking to reinvent the wheel. It's what schools used to do before processed foods got shipped in and um you know everything was kind of microwaved and warmed up so talk to me about that side at the moment we've got you know soda companies putting their vending machines in the schools we've got fast food companies you know forcing them way into schools and, and colleges what's your perspective of education and that that captive audience and the nutrition side of our children Mm-hmm.
1: So for adults, let's exclude adults because they have choice. They can do whatever they want to do. So if they want to eat hamburgers and pizza and have all those things, that's their that's up to them, you know. Um it's a little bit more difficult when you're a child though. So for a lot of um under-resourced areas, the primary source of nutrition is in school. So where there might be a snowstorm, certain school districts Probably should close, but they don't close because if they closed, the kids would not eat that day. They would not have proper meals. So, um, you know, I, I'm sure this is a very, very difficult and, and um, delicate uh, subject. I'm sure there are lobbyist groups who are working, and I'm sure there's the agric- agriculture folks. But there's an organization called Mission Readiness um, that is a um, organization of retired military generals and admirals. And they're finding ways and looking at solutions to make sure that we feed our, our youth better. Because the 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 military recruits of 2040, they're about four or five years old right now, or a little bit younger, or a little bit older. But if we don't provide them that strong foundation of good nutrition and mental health and physical activity and social connection and the an ability to think big and dream big, we're going to be in trouble. And we being the military, um, but also if you're not able to probably qualify for the military, it would be difficult to be a firefighter and a first responder. And um, uh, I also think for businesses and companies, you're trying to hire healthy folks. So if you have an employee who's often out sick, it's very, very difficult uh, on your company because everybody there's not excess, excess people at companies. So when someone's not at work, that means someone else might have to pick up their their load. But the more healthy you can have it, like corporate wellness, corporate fitness, I think is such an important thing nowadays to uh, help our employees, our companies make sure that their people are, while I'll say fit to fight, I would say fit to work, fit to contribute, fit to be productive. And that, again, will come through um, like um, companies like Google or the Department of Defense where they hire experts to teach us how to be physically fit, how to eat properly, and use these evidence-based researched, um, um, evidence-based researched, research to get you in the top physical condition. You'd be like an athlete. The military is treating our young men and women like uh, division one athletes or pro athletes. Their human performance is an important component of being a successful military person. Well, we also need to look, how do we take care of the families and the folks as they retire. So nutrition is a huge component to all this. You know, eating right, um, got to be. you have to be provided rocket fuel to act like a rocket. You can't give uh, cheap gas to a person you want to act like a um, Division I athlete, but that comes with education and not to be afraid from time to time to go have a slice of cheesecake and have pizza and have a hamburger and a hot dog. You don't have to exclude it all. You just have to... Um, Have the majority of your diet based on the proper foods to fuel your body and to think with the end in mind. So Dr. Peter Italia uh, talks about if you want to live to 100, you have to start preparing yourself right now to live to 100. Sleeping, eating, exercising, moving, all those things on a consistent basis will help you reach 100. You can't skip a a few of those steps and think that you're going to live a a healthy, healthy mobile life in your 50s and 60s if you haven't put in the work in your 20s 30s and 40s
0: well going back to your timeline um i know you've got an interesting journey into the military especially when it came to interacting with the wider brothers so let's kind of kind of walk me through your decision to enter the air force and then how you came across strength and conditioning
1: sure so um great question my my uh family Has been a part of the military since the American Revolutionary War, where my sixth great grandfather Pet Milner joined. Uh, He was in North Carolina, part of the militia there. Um, My third great grandfather it was a Confederate soldier, so he'd probably pretty pretty be uh, shocked to see me. That's for sure to be uh, his grandson. You know, yeah, it's it is what it is, but. I always thought the military just seemed like such a cool thing to do. And, uh, you know, um, I have family members in it now currently where I have a cousin. He's a fighter pilot in the Air Force and I have another cousin. She's a linguist in the Air Force and I have cousins who somehow they joined the army. I don't know why they did that, but they did. So no problem. Or my cousin was in the Navy and uh, I felt sorry for him. But, you know, not everyone could be as cool as being part of the uh, Air Force. So, you know, but jokes aside. To anyone who serves our country, what a what a I just think they're special people. They're like the best of the best of America. So, you know, it's a tough job, very, very, very demanding. But I was up for the adventure. Um, my first assignment. Ironically, I went to Germany and England, and my great uncle, his first two assignments were Germany and England as well. We I had no idea knowing, you know, I didn't know this until probably after I retired, but it's almost like it's part of the genes. Another uncle who was um, uh, a mom from Point Marine, you know, one of the first few black, uh, first black Marines. Um, So it's just part of the family business. It's just part of what we do. Um, And what's cooler than that for me, you know, I I think for those who serve or firefighters or police officers or teach, whatever you do, if you find that calling, you found where you belong, where you feel comfortable, you found your community. And so, that was it for me uh so my first assignment was plum air station in west germany uh it was in the area where the battle of the bulge was fought so it was very isolated it was a, it was on top of a ski resort called the Schwarzemann um and there wasn't much to do but to go outside and be active and play and we were in the gym often but every month at the end of the month this magazine called muscle fitness which i had been reading since i was 12 would come and I always thought that's my connection to America in some aspects, because from time to time the cable TV would go down and there was only one station in English, uh, which was AFN. But that magazine was a way to connect with these American stars of bodybuilding and fitness and nutrition. And so uh, one Christmas, uh, the Christmas of 1983, December, I sent Ben Weeder and Joe Weeder Christmas cards, uh, just told them thank you for, you know, providing this magazine. Thanks for what you do. And um, surprising, like I heard back from both of them and I did not know, but Ben Weider had served in the Canadian military uh, and he said, thank you for your card. Uh, Once you get back to the U S why don't you reach out to me? And if um, you're interested, maybe we can find a position or something for you to do here at Weider or within the uh, International Federation of Bodybuilders. So my relationship to the Weeder family started in uh, 1983 and continues to this day.
0: When I, you know, when I was little, you know, as I kind of transitioned into teens, you know, it was the bodybuilding, strength and conditioning. What were you doing prior? I mean, you, you said you, you were reading Muscle and Fitness. So, what, what was the kind of um, metamorphosis of strength and conditioning as you entered the military and then as you became more involved with the bodybuilding community?
1: So I was playing softball, basketball, baseball, uh, but just so once you move to a place like uh, Germany where the winters are severe and you're not a skier, you have to find something to do indoors. And so for me, it was a weight room. So the weight room at our at our um, at premier station was an important place where it was, again, social connection where a lot of us came together. But I was able to take all these inspiring photos from the muscle and fitness books and hang them up on the walls of the gym. And so people would come in there and be inspired. And the equipment was really shoddy equipment, but it was the best equipment because that's all we had. But, and, and again, going back to the Weeder family, it was thanks to them, Ben and Joe, who promoted physical fitness and weights at military facilities and at hospitals and at hotels and uh, fire stations, because before them, it wasn't common. It was actually kind of taboo that you become muscle bound and People who lifted weights thought, were thought to be narcissists. However, uh, they changed it through the education and, and through all the things they were able to do to connect people of different nationalities and races through uh, the sport of bodybuilding. And they also made it acceptable and and um, uh, more common for, for fitness facilities to be located on bases and in hospitals and hotels. So when often when I'm in a hotel somewhere, I think, Part of this is thanks to Ben and Joe for what they did. Pretty cool.
0: So I know you ended up writing for some of the magazines too. So what was that military lens that you would write about in in the pages?
1: So I had the good fortune of um, having a. I think I have a PhD in and diplom- and diplomacy from Ben Weider. He was the master diplomat diplomat, um, and he was a part of um, changing the apartheid system in South Africa because. There was a movie called Pumping Iron, very, very famous movie in the bodybuilding community. And uh, Ben had negotiated with their prime minister and their sports minister to have the world championships of bodybuilding in South Africa. However, if they would not treat all athletes the same, especially the black athletes, the, the, the um, option would be taken off the table. And he had the buy-in and support of um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was the star, the biggest star in bodybuilding circles, who absolutely said this is what he wants as well. And if they can't do that, we're not coming. So often I would ask Ben, you know, he he talked to me about having a dream box, like big dreams. You, drink, you, you think so big and dream so big that your dreams scare you in some aspects. And putting them into this box. And he talked about that he would dream like this, but he didn't dream about money. He always dreamed about changing the world and being a positive influence and doing major things through sport. And so when he made that happen, later on he was put in for the Nobel Peace Prize because that was one of the cracks to break down the wall of apartheid. And you think, what made him think he can do that? Like, well, you've got to be pretty bold to think that you're going to change a system that doesn't want to be changed. And the following year, which would have been 1976, the first time the South African athlete of the year was a Black South African. So it just goes to show that if you think, I, I, I my new term is called a disruptor. If everybody agrees and everybody does the same thing, things don't change. You absolutely need somebody to pull that scab off a little bit. You need somebody that can be respectful, they can be honorable, but they need to shake it up a little bit. And I think that's what Ben was. He, he would disarm you when asked back with his manners and that tie and that immaculate look, but... He was working behind the scenes and making sure that I'm going to make sure that there's a good change in doing it through sport. The thing he knew, you know, I I don't know much about cars or medicine or electricity, but I do know about a bit about the military and sports. So that's the way that I'm trying to make a positive change and kind of following his model and his template of um, you could do cool things and amazing things and where you're, what your comfort spot is where your comfort zone is and his model has shown that it's possible so how do we make it continue how do we make it happen now and uh that's what my goal and, and, and um my mission is now with with the support of a lot of my
0: friends beautiful yeah that would be de Klerk, wouldn't it the, the prime minister or the president at the time south africa i think i'm well, not sure um... if he was
1: yeah i don't remember all the names because uh as you get this age, James, things start fading. I, <laughs> I remember what I had for lunch yesterday. But but I the bottom part of the story is that he was able to make something change because he wanted to and that he was determined to and because it was the right thing to do as
0: well. It's a shame he couldn't have persuaded Mandela to like squat four wheels for the front cover. That would have been epic. <laughs> yeah, that, that would have been something else, huh?
1: But, but as you say, Mandela, Mandela says, you know, sport has the power to change the world. It it laughs in the face of racism and prejudice. And I do think that's something, you know, um, sports diplomacy right now is so important. And we're working on some projects that I think will help with sports diplomacy in the future with some embassies here in D.C., bringing people from different backgrounds together through sport, through play, and making sure that there's laughter and smiles. And you won because you showed up, not because you're the fastest. So more to come on that later on
0: beautiful i can't wait to hear about that i know i watched the world cup um last year and the final was actually i was on a cruise with my wife and so you know we got to see all the argentinians just losing their mind at the end of it but that's such a beautiful you know representation of the world you know and and there's one thing that unifies everyone which is a sport that they all love it could be morocco or cameroon or the uk or wherever and this is the power of, of of community the power of sport and again. You know, the other teams aren't ridiculed because they didn't win. Everyone was proud to support, you know, get behind a tribe in a positive way. But then when your country got knocked out, you're like, all right, who do I like? And then you just start supporting Morocco because they, it's their first time in a long time or, you know, sure. whatever it is. Um, yeah. So I think sport and the UFC is another good example. I love seeing all these, these you know, smaller nations now that are having fires coming out and, you know, metaphorically and literally kicking ass.
1: Yeah. And again, it just, it allows you to escape the realism for a while, but then you get back to it. And most, all athletes have dealt with failure before. There are very few athletes, like, you know, Michael Jordan talks about all the shots he's taken and missed. And uh, Wayne Gretzky says, like, you you miss every shot you don't take. Um, or there's others who say half the battle is showing up. And so these are life lessons that, while they pertain to these athletes, they also pertain to life. You you miss every opportunity you don't take. You have to be a risk taker. And some Now, I'm adverse to most risk. I, I think I like the security of knowing what my day is going to be like, and that's why I, I was able to do well in the military. But to see someone like a Musk, uh, Elon Musk or a Zuckerberg or um, a Bill Gates, to have that kind of um, ability to take failure and turn it into success, like how many times do you think that Musk was told no? You're crazy. It won't happen. But he did it, and now look where he's at. And uh, also with um, women in sports, you know, so many of them who are on the C-suite have sports backgrounds because they learned about being uh, told no. To they learned how to cope with uh, failure. They learned how to communicate. They learned how to uh, work as a team. And I think the stat is about ninety-four percent the women on c-suites have a sport background meaning school or college and uh, a friend of mine christy ingram from um ernst and young did the research on this and it's just such a powerful uh, i'll send you the link so that maybe you can put it in the show notes for that um the power of being a part of a team and playing and being physically active what it can do for you as you move forward in in the um, in the um, business Business community as well. Sports follows you forever.
0: So you have a unique perspective. So it's an interesting question to ask you. When you look at the world of CrossFit, when I look at the world of CrossFit, and I got in somewhat early, got in like two thousand six. I've seen an interesting kind of you know roller coaster from its purest form that the, you know, the principles of philosophies were still very front and center, but we just weren't very good at it because we didn't have, you know, Olympic lifters teaching us and gymnasts, uh, unless you were in that core group. And then, you know, it gets into the sporting side and, and sadly, you know, people kind of want to cut corners and then we're getting more injuries. And then now we're seeing a lot of real experts teaching us and the coaches are getting a lot better and the athletes are getting more humble when we walk through the door. But then, you know, again, and it's, it's this undulation, um, but in its purest form, I think CrossFit is phenomenal. It's not everything. Nothing is everything, but it's done so much, especially for the tactical world. When I look at bodybuilding, the old Arnold movements, a lot of compound barbell movements, you know, still very functional. And then as sport uh, exercise equipment has been developed, the machines get bigger for the muscle group that's getting smaller. And then you look at some of the recruitments I wrote in, in my book about two bodybuilders. I watched test for the fire department. And, you know, I can I can laugh because they were both so fucking arrogant. So (laughs) they really were (laughs) bright orange. But I mean, couldn't make it up two flights of stairs before they tapped out. So you have a great exercise philosophy. Some areas of bodybuilding became or, you know, your average person got very big without the functional strength. We are in a world of tactical athletes where you need strength and muscular endurance and endurance and mental toughness. What have you seen as far as? the purity of what the widers wanted and maybe some of the the offshoots that actually didn't prepare people well for um tactical athlete positions
1: Mm -hmm. it's a great question but there's a difference between the bodybuilding who's a competitive athlete who's looking to win stage and win medals and become a professional and those who are bodybuilders because they want to increase their mobility increase their strength and to make themselves feel better and stronger and more powerful uh because muscle you know, having muscle is a life extension. Is uh, life extension to me? You know, those who are stronger probably live longer. Uh, it allows you to be more mobile. It gives you a better uh, or increased lifespan and health span. So the health span is like your lifespan might be 66, but if you're sick at 50, you have 16 years of being sick. But if you can kind of match your lifespan and your health span to where you're, say, if you were the Uh, pass at 80, you've had 79 years or 80 years of being mobile and doing what you wanted to and having the strength to do your laundry, to carry that basket up and down the stairs, to mow lawn if you want to. Uh, Recently, because of some travel I've been doing, I was um, noticing how many folks are having a difficult time uh, walking at airports because the, the gates are so far apart and not being able to carry their bags are needing assistance or just stopping. And sometimes people, I can hear them saying, are you okay? And they're saying, I'm just catching my breath. Where, you know, I think a hundred years ago, everybody was mobile. Everybody was moving. You had to walk long distances. You had to move. You were chopping wood. You were gathering wood. You were hunting for your your meal. So we've probably gone from the average person might've been taking 16, 17,000 steps a day to now where you can take, literally less than 500 or a thousand steps a day. And, you know, for hundreds of thousands of years, we were mobile, moving people. And now these last, you know, say, uh, maybe even since more like the 1920s or 30s uh, before convenience of automobiles and when we stopped having to go outside to the outhouse for bathrooms, uh, when uh, the introduction of more, I guess, uh, mass transit helped, you know, I remember my grandparents or older folks saying we had to walk four miles back and forth to school, eight miles a day or three or six miles a day. Well, don't hear about that anymore. You know, uh, most kids are biking, getting rides, not biking, they're taking a bus or getting a ride. You you don't see um, probably in the majority of the country where lots of kids are walking over a mile and a half or two miles to school. Now, there might be some areas and there might be some kids that's their form of exercise and what they want to do. But statistics show that we are not as physically active as we we used to be. And so some of that just happened to be with walking to school, riding to school, playing at recess, doing gym, uh, having gym class, all that physical movement has been reduced greatly and it all adds up. And every week, month, year that we are less active will add up at the end. So you're lifespan decreases and your health span decreases because what you did in your earlier years did not prepare you for a longer, more mobile life. So education, uh, we need influencers to help get the message out. And we also can't shame people. Like I often think, I have a friend, Alex Morrow, who shares the same thought that the bravest person in the gym is probably the person who's the most out of shape because they're looking at all these amazing fit bodies and and folks taking videos of themselves, but you don't know where they came from. You know, the person who's there, who looks out of shape to you, might've already lost 100 or 200 pounds. So for them to be there now, they are just super brave to me because they don't look like everybody else. So, um, sorry, my voice is breaking up, but they they are the ones actually that inspire you to motivate you because again, they're back to being consistent. They're there day after day after day. And, uh, you know, a few months later, you look at them and think, wow, they've made more improvement. And I, I learned a lesson recently. We were uh, a friend of mine. We were in the gym, and we noticed this lady and her son's working out every day, and she had made tremendous progress. But we thought, how do we tell her that without being offensive, like saying, we're not trying to say anything fresh or anything, but we just want to say, great job. And we decided just to do that. Listen excuse me, ma'am, can we tell you something? As you know, we're here every day. We say hi. Wonderful. You're doing an awesome job. We just wanted to say congratulations because you you inspire us to keep us going. And then you just see like big crocodile tears. Like, boom, here they come. Like, oh, well, I'm sorry. What did we do? Nothing. <laughs> she just appreciated that we told her because sometimes, as she said, you get frustrated. You're thinking it's not a good day. I didn't do what I wanted to. Uh, my sons aren't listening today or... They don't want to do this, but we kept coming. And then for, for us to say something to her meant so much to her. And so now when we see her in the gym, that's the biggest, brightest smile we see every single day that she's just like happy that somebody acknowledged them. So I thought for all the folks who are going to the fitness centers and gyms, or, or if it's at your school or, or your community center, when you see somebody being consistent and being in there, don't have to say much to them, but just say, I see you. Good job! Way to go!
0: Absolutely. And again, I, there's some great videos out there. Of, I mean, I, I follow a lot of people that are on their journey. Some of them, you know, are done losing weight. They're in phenomenal shape now, and you know, even wearing their 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 skin, you know, the excess skin that they have now, and refusing to get it cut off. So it reminds me of where I was. And um, yeah, absolutely. And like you said the courage to go in. Um, and I think again, most gym goers would think that way. You know, it's only the few that are going to sneer and make fun of people. Um, you talked about the airport too. It's funny, I've actually flown a lot the last few months and I've noticed like the the walkway next to the, what do they call them, the travelators, the people movers are always completely empty. The stairs are always completely empty and I'm there lugging my 5.11 bags around. But this is the problem. You know, yes, the travelator, when you're an 80 year old person that's trying to get through Dallas, Fort Worth or some of these massive airports, Atlanta, um, they're going to need that assistance. But we've created a culture where like no one no one was walking just on the regular one. Yeah, you might get there slightly faster, but you've just, you know, taken away a thousand, two thousand steps by standing there, you know, on a thing that's flat. It's not even going up; it's flat. So we, I think culturally, we got a lot of work to do to get people, like you said, just moving again. I remember when right. I first moved to the states, my ex sitting there with a blinker on, waiting for a park, you know, a parking space close to the store. I'm like, what are you doing? Just go right. park over there. There's loads of spaces back there. But that was the cultural thing. And it, and it caused fights early on. Eventually she she did. But this is how we're programmed. It's like the path of least resistance. But our culture is so freaking comfortable now that that path of least resistance is almost no movement at all.
1: Right. Well, you know, this is a topic that uh, I've been sharing with some of the folks related to the military, the military community, the veteran service organizations that Um, I have a friend, Dr. Reagan Stegman, and I often say that she will probably be one of the time, 100 most influential people one day because she's a medical doctor. She practiced lifestyle medicine and it talks about um, how do you get the most out of yourself to be a great um, advocate for promoting wellness and health and all the things that come with that from your decreasing emotional stress and mental stress to uh, increasing social connection and spirituality, but she often says that we in the military, and I think it's probably very similar for firefighters, police officers, that we hire and recruit the most fit people to join our forces, but by the time they retire or get out, they're the most unfit. And so, for instance, there's some research that says the average weight gain for uh, a person who leaves the military, especially the retirees, is 30 pounds within a 12-month period. Now, some of that has to do with they no longer have that support that they had. they no longer are wearing that uniform so that you didn't want your uniform to be snug. So you made sure you did what you had to do. That social connection, you know, of your buddies in the gym, maybe even the access to the gym, depending on where they live, where they move to, maybe they don't have access to such a fitness facility. But what that takes them from often is from overweight to obesity, which increases by two to three fold. Problems with their Uh, health—from their backs to their knees to their hearts to their blood pressure—all suffer greatly. So, how do we continue to train these people, or to provide them the ability and the access to um, information to keep them healthy? Because if you join the greatest team on earth, which I call the American military, you should be um, a—you should be a part or should be a player forever. You never. Are off the team you just have a reduced role on the team so the active duty are the stars of the game they're the ones who are in in the first quarter but what we as retirees and veterans are is to be supportive and be mentors and and, and share wisdom with them but we also need to have the support of our healthcare system in my personal opinion to keep us in the game uh we also though will reduce healthcare costs because a healthier fit person needs less time in the hospital, needs less medication. And so um, I'm sure there's a parallel that we reduce costs by keeping people in shape. But keeping people in shape, there's a cost to that. The H2F, which is an army fitness program, the trainers, the nutritionists, the exercise physiologists, the data scientists. But I think by hiring all these people and putting them in place, there's a, there's a, a huge return on investment later on. And if I'm a recruiter, just like I would for a major university, like uh, we went to Yale university and met their football coach. And he said, if you give us four years of your life, we give you 40 back, meaning that mentorship and ability and support and um, resources, they would always be there for you. I think the same is could be true for the military, that once you retire, you're not done. We still will provide you access to these fitness facilities. And if you need a nutritionist, And if you need an exercise physiologist and if you need a a spiritual counselor or a mental health expert, they're there for you because you served and you helped protect our country and enabled us to live the lives we live. So how do we make that happen? Uh, Part of it is conversations, discussions, uh, probably some bills and some laws that need to be adjusted and changed. But um, it just makes sense to me that you want them when they're young. You want to keep them as they age. So that we can show um, them that if you join this um, this this great team, you're a part of it forever.
0: That mirrors the fire service, you know, a lot as far as the, the problem. And I've, I've used the term false economy a lot. You know, we work our firefighters, which is the community that I, I know, into the ground. You know, and you have standing on day one, a drill ground full of arguably some of the most mentally and physically resilient members of their community and then fast forward 10 15 years and still in uniform you know overweight obese i mean it, it it's a deconditioning and again taking ownership and environment into the conversation together you, you know, the sleep deprivation causes so many things in the body, the hormonal disruption and the, the testosterone breakdown and all these things that then affects motivation. Now you add the massive call load and the mandatory overtime. And before you know it, you know, the cop hasn't left his car and now he's, you know, 30 pounds heavier, or you know, the firefighters, you know, pulling a steering wheel off as they get out of the rig, which I've heard has actually happened before. Um, so uh, you know. That, like you said, investing in strength and conditioning programs, in rest and recovery, like time off for our first responders, you know, not working them into the ground, the 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 return on investment will be huge. But it takes courageous leadership to invest in your people. And you talked about Google. You look at how their work week has evolved to, you know, four nine-hour days now. They're like people are just as productive in four days, so we're going to do that and give them three days off. But yet the first responder professions, it's always do more with less, more with less, more with less. And we are absolutely at, you know, a a critical mass now. So with the military lens, are there any programs where you're actually able to see the financial gains of certain wellness or selection um, initiatives in, in the time that you work there?
1: Yes, James. Great question. Um so the military has something called the Armed Forces Wellness Centers. Um I'm not sure how many there are. There, there I think there's um, 30 or so, but it, it's something that there'll be more of them on the way. That they are your one-stop shop for evidence-based information related to your, your mental, spiritual, uh, physical health, and wellness. And so I have a friend, Nicole Leith, who works there. She's one of the directors, and she's a dynamo of promoting. Uh, the services that this place provides for free for those who serve, or veterans, or retirees. As long as you have access to a military base, uh, you can use these services. And what an important, um, like this is so so important, especially for families. Because um, I don't know how the traditions for military or for police officers and firefighters are, but currently about eighty percent of those who serve in the military have a military connection, meaning their father, their mother, their brother, their uncle, their cousin served. Uh, Another 30%, either their mom or dad, both served. So going back to, again, the class of 2040, the recruits of 2040 are military kids. Majority of them are military kids now on military installations who hopefully are getting access to um, space to play, place to run, place uh, to throw a ball, to catch a ball, to swim, to climb, um, because our country is going to need them to become the next level or the next greatest uh, generation. And so, um, fortunately, I, I have the ear of some pretty um, influential folks who are willing to listen, because sometimes, James, I would say, it's a little bit difficult without having a, a PhD or a scientist and all this, but my my goal is not to embarrass and to say you should have done this or you should have, you should have, you should have. My goal is to be a disruptor in a kind and um, forceful way though that here is the re- evidence. I have friends again, like Reagan Stegman and Dr. Marianne Heal and uh, Dr. Sharon Bannister, Major General Sharon Bannister, who are the experts, who are the PhDs and physicians who can provide the um, backup that I need with the, with the evidence where I'm the mouthpiece and they're the bridge to help educate our our forces and our decision makers um, with information so that we can make smart, intelligent choices. And, you know, I know the Air Force is doing better with this. Thanks a lot to Reagan and Dr. Keel, their, their leadership in this, uh, the H2F program, um, Major General John Klein, they're doing amazing work. They're changing lives each and every day uh another friend spencer posey he's with the um h2f at the Tomb of the unknown guard now these are the most elite of our elite military men and women because of their appearance and because of the mission that they have their badge the tomb guard badge is the second hardest badge to get in the army and the only hardest badge, or harder badge to get is the astronaut badge and so their physical fitness the way they look their um, stamina is so, so important to the performance of their mission. So um, before I forget, let me invite you to come to DC and come and see them so we can introduce you to these folks because they have a great story to tell. And when you see them, you think they're amazing. They look they all look like posters. But I also think as uh, speaking to them, um, when you see them, you think, I want to be a part of something like that, you know, it would be awesome for recruiting purposes to take young men and women who are considering the military for uh, an option, a career option, um, to go see them because they are just their precision and their like these are people from all different parts of the country who who have different accents and different nationalities, and they come together through the training that the uh, military provides for them and that their fellow uh, soldiers provide to them to become a well-oiled machine. to there's not a spoken word. Their commands are timing flicks of the heels and, um, their personal pride of excellence. So I I think that, you know, when you want to be a part of something so elite like that, seeing that, seeing that uh, example is pretty important. Um, I often hear the saying it's hard to be, but you can't see. And when, when people don't get a chance to see people doing well and being excellent and being physically fit, it's hard to imagine it depending on where they're from. But, um, the military can provide those examples. And so, yes, getting back to your question, there are there are programs, there are things being done in the military um, to make sure there's a, a, a program, Champus, that provides all this amazing information, all evidence-based. Um, uh, there's a guy, Jay Russell Lederman, aka crazy juice. He's just an awesome guy in the Navy that provides uh amazing data and facts to get you in the best shape possible because we're all not meant to be competitive athletes, but we can get you in the best shape for the military and the services they provide can get you in the best shape that you possibly can be in. And it brings them joy to do it too. You know, you're not paying outrageous prices for trainers and all. They're doing this because they want to make sure that our our community, the military community is healthy and fit as best as possible.
0: See, and I think that's the thing about this conversation. There's no downside. I'm talking about firefighter fitness and wellness. Not only are we able to perform, you know, on a fire, on a on an extrication, on a rope rescue, whatever it is, or a wildland fire, but you're also fostering that resilience for that man or woman to then have a healthy retirement. So there's literally no downside. But what I've found is when you present this false economy uh, you know, argument and showing them, look, you're bleeding money on medical retirements and workman's comp and overtimes and lawsuits and all the things that are attached to poor performance. Um, we just need courage. We need someone, just like you said, and a disruptor has been used on this show many times because I agree with it. Like, you know, the, the gloves are off and I'm trying to have that middle of the row conversation, but you've got to have a little aggression as well to slap someone out of the way you've always done it. But investing in our people you know getting those those young fit recruits and keeping them fit you know through the whole way and like you said it's not about six packs it's not about you know deadlifting a thousand pounds it's fostering the best version of yourself and one might be you know a super tiny person ends up being a phenomenal you know pilot another one might be a breacher on a you know on a seal team who knows but we're still trying to get the best version of ourselves so we spend four or 20 years in in uniform. And then you, you end up, you know, transitioning to another important role in your community and being there as a father and a grandfather or whatever role you play. And as you said, having a beautiful lifespan and a wellness span, not just simply getting to a numerical point with no real quality of life.
1: You've said it all, James. Um, And but, you know, there are also lots of folks out there who aren't in the middle like, we can't depend on the government. We can't depend on schools. Sometimes you've got to take it amongst yourself and say, I'm going to do something. So when you mentioned about the parking, so um, I'm president of something called Rolling Thunder Washington, D.C., and, uh, and Rolling Thunder was the world's biggest uh, one-day event. It's still the biggest military gathering where military men and women and supporters and participants come to D.C., a Memorial Day weekend, and they ride their bikes to um, remember our prisoners of war and missing in action in their families. And we've, we would have up to a million people um, who come to this. And so I had the opportunity to talk to literally thousands of veterans about various topics. And the one that I've been focused on recently has been about their health, because I've seen um, how within three to five years, a person who's upright on their bike, can no longer have the strength to hold that bike so now they go from a two-wheeler to a trike but they're still there but my 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 thoughts are is how do we help our veteran community improve their physical health because these were these men and women were human weapon systems in their early teens or later teens and early 20s and 30s they were the ones who were the defender defenders of freedom going out there and giving all to our nation breaking down their body, um, really having horrific injuries, but they kept coming back because this is what they wanted to do. This is what they were born to do in, in many cases. But now we need to help them understand that the next mission in life is possibly being that grandma or grandpa who walks your your grandson or granddaughter down the aisle. Or there's a commercial here in Northern Virginia I've seen a few times where grandpa's too tired to throw the ball. You know, like there's, oh, grandpa, he can't get up, he's tired. Well, how about if you become that grandpa or grandma where you could go kick the soccer ball? Now, we're not asking you to play in a match, just a few kicks, just a few catches. But also, if you're able to do that, you probably have the stamina and the strength now to go to that concert where your grandson, granddaughter, or niece or nephew is playing because you feel confident and strong to walk to that stair or to that that arena. Um, Because a lot of times people are like, oh, I'm so tired. Well, how about if we increase your ability to walk? A few more steps every day, and then at the end of the month, you can walk farther. And then six months later, you're you're better off. You've dropped your weight, you've dropped your medication, you've increased your um, confidence. You know, like I often hear so many older folks talk about their the fear of falling. You know, if they fall, uh, and um, there's a doctor Huberman, I, I don't remember his first name, talks about like the percentage if you're 65 and older, and if you fall and break your hip there's a greater percentage of you dying within a year. If you're 70 and break your hip. there's greater percentages. But if your bones are stronger and you have muscle, while you may not be what you were previously, your chances of survival are also greater. Because exercise, being strong, being physically fit, fit, is like the world's best medicine. Like If there's a pill that we can take to give us the benefits of medicine, if you and I owned that company, we'd be trillionaires, you know? Um, but there are things we can do, and being active and lifting and moving and eating well and staying hydrated and sleeping are ways to increase our our lifespan and health span.
0: There was a video going around social media. I shared, I think, a couple of times now, and it was really it was a beautiful, beautifully done. It was an older gentleman. He looked like he was almost like Italian or Greek or something, and he would go every day. And there was this old dusty kettlebell. And he would kind of take it from the floor. I think he put it over his head or something. And every day, and there was interaction. You know, like his daughter was trying to figure out what he was doing. And then at the end of the video, he picks up his granddaughter and holds her up so she can put the star on the Christmas tree. And that to me was everything. Like you know, what we do in the gym is is for real life,
1: right? That was award-winning commercial. That was from Canada. I've, I've seen that before. Uh, but what you just said, it's, it's you know like now I'm in the gym. And at one time, maybe I wanted to be a certain look because of um, ego. But now it's more or less to make sure that my balance is still there, that I can lift things from the floor to the shelf, um, that I can carry bags or suitcases. So you 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 program your exercise routine to do real life, like things that mimic life. So pressing. You know, pressing movements. Um, that's what I'm going to do is I'm going to put something in this shelf. If I'm carrying my bags, maybe there's like I think it's called a fireman something where you have two weights in two hands and you do a walk. The farmer's um, walk. Farmer's walk. well, See, so I'm giving credit to firemen, but it's <laughs> but but those type of things, and um, just trying to maintain the strength and the balance. But with all that, also comes um, I, I think you just have confidence too. As Joe Weider used to say that he lifted weights because he also wanted to feel strong. Uh, you know, feeling strong gives you the confidence to feel like you can overcome obstacles and, and not be afraid that somebody's going to do something to you because you're weak. And, um, I think there's so much research that shows the importance of being strong and fit. Uh, we just have to get it out. And we, we need different sources and people who look different, uh, to share that with their communities. We can't all have people who are looking like pro athletes or one kind of, um, you know, blonde, blue eyed or African-American age. All of them make sense in all different sizes, all different ages, because the message will be taken by those communities. So we have to, we just have to make sure that we diversify our thoughts and diversify our, our uh, the appearance of those who are promoting physical activity so that they can reach more people and more masses. And we have to get kids involved. Again, if it's about us, include us. And we need to find ways to make sure that kids could become youth, uh, physical fitness and sports ambassadors. Um, because they have they have part of the solution that we're all looking for.
0: Absolutely. Well, I wanna get to Transcend and Transcend Foundation, but just before we do, I heard you on the American Legion podcast. Dan Bornstein was on here a while ago and he really, you know, unpacked the national security issue of you know, obesity and, and deconditioning, especially in our our young men and women that are the eligible age to go into military, into first responders. So talk to me about the statistics of, of how many people are in the age group that we'd normally recruit from and how many actually qualify physically for service.
1: Sure, great question. So we are at the worst, um, I guess the worst positioning for recruiting since 1973, uh, the end of the Vietnam War. So we have uh, between the ages of 17 to 24, 23% of the population are qualified to serve. Out of that 23%, 12% go to university, are employed, uh, have no interest in the military, the other 11%, they would be good candidates. But out of that 11%, only 9% actually really want to go into the military. Now, some of this has to do with those of us who are veterans. Um, after withdrawal of Afghanistan, due to some of the benefits, you know, the struggles that we have to get, military benefits, um, some of the things that they've seen their family members go through, like missing birthdays and holidays and important uh, anniversaries that they suggest to their family members or their, their younger family members, maybe the military life is not for you. So we're fighting that as well. But the other part is, you know, when you see war, like we were able to see war at like almost unfiltered because of our social media. You know, when you see what's going on in Israel and Palestine and that you hear that our troops have been sent over and that some of them have experienced, you know, where missiles have hit certain things and some of them have been injured or, um, there's potential to be injured. Do you want to put your life on the line for that? And and for many parents, some of them say, especially if it's not fighting for America, they don't they don't want their child to be, I guess, um, a statistic or die. And I understand that as a parent myself, I understand that. But somebody, we always need people to serve our country to defend what we have. So how do we help that? And I guess education is the key. Maybe having town halls or open where where uh, we can help the recruiters by maybe getting a number of parents together where we can go to a base and have them on a bus and show them the lifestyle that's on these bases and maybe having a, a, a conference or a forum where we speak about real military life with folks who have no idea because it's about 0.5% currently serving. So during World War II, let's just say 14 to 20% of the population served, meaning If it wasn't someone in your family, it was the postman, the milkman, the banker. Somebody was connected to the military. And if they weren't connected by serving, they were either part of the industry that was building the tanks and the ships and the the guns. And so there was just a a national call to action. Well, now for our last conflicts and wars, most people aren't involved. And it's the same families over and over. And it's the same men and women with multiple deployments, seven, eight, 10, 12 deployments. So the cost is, this great cost is not spread amongst the country equally. It's a small min- minority of people having the majority of the, of the weight on their backs serving our country. So how do we educate those who don't know about the military uh, on, about the military? And that while this is a part, because believe the, the, the mission of the military is to prevent war, to not have war. But when the time comes and the commander-in-chief says you have to go, that is our job, is to protect our country. And so when folks don't really know much about it, fear of the unknown sometimes probably prohibits them and and gives them thoughts and feelings that are are, are real in their head, but maybe with a little bit of um, education, knowledge, and um, I guess... Having the ability to talk to real airmen and soldiers and guardians and sailors might be helpful as well. Now, everybody's not meant to serve, but you can serve different ways. And uh, serving by maybe if you have a company and once a soldier or airman gets out, maybe you can provide them job training. Maybe you can provide them an opportunity to work in your company because these men and women come with amazing leadership skills and discipline, hard work, Um Great ability to communicate, have diversity of thought, diversity of friends, diversity of diversity is just the key of all this. But I, I do think that, you know, just because you don't serve one way doesn't mean you can't serve another. Just saying thank you for your service is important. Uh, showing up for parades when the American Legion or the EFW walks by, standing up and clapping for them if you can. You no, know, um, I often think sometimes when you you see a a veteran, when you say thank you for your service, they get a bit, I I think sometimes they get a bit embarrassed because they're not looking for a fanfare, but boy, does it make a big difference. It makes them feel good for what they did, you know? And so I think it's important to have the attitude of gratitude, um, thanking police officers and firefighters and teachers. And thank you is just a powerful word. It's it's really magical. I was in Panera and I was going to offer the police officer, um, I said, I got you. And he goes, thank you, but they already got it for me. I was just i am glad to see that other people were thinking it doesn't cost as much to buy a cup of coffee for someone for putting their life on the line for all of us. So just if you can, you know, everybody can't, but if you can, just doing those little bitty things. It happened to me many times. I was in Alaska one time and having dinner and I was afraid of the cost because I knew I went a little bit overboard. So I'm thinking, oh, this is gonna be a lot of money. So I go to pay and they said it was already taken care of. They knew you were military. They didn't want any nothing from you. They just wanted to say thank you. And I'm thinking, now you pay it forward, you know. So I try to do that from time to time. You know, if I see people or veterans who, you know, wear the cap and uh, I'll just say they're they're good for whatever their cost is. Um, we got them because that's how you pay it forward and show appreciation.
0: Beautiful. I couldn't agree more. And it's even with that awkwardness, like we get thanks and you know, you don't you don't want thanks, but at the same time, it's that way of that person showing that they appreciate what you do. So it's this kind of awkward, you know, dichotomy in a way. Um, and,
1: and if I can add to that, James, please. if you could say thanks in front of their family or their grandkids or their friends, because often it's the families that miss that person that have missed the birthday that have missed the anniversary. Absolutely. And so. If you're if you're able to say thanks to a, a, a woman who served our military and her husband's right next to her, and for her to have that from you, her husband's like, wow, it's powerful. That, that would be just such a great um, way to show sincere thanks and to allow that family to also appreciate what that family member does for them. But for that family member or for that service member to say thank you to you too for supporting me. Doing this, you know, this difficult and trying job, and again, firefighters, police officers, same thing. You know, just saying thanks, and, and particularly in front of kids and family members, is is a great way to show appreciation.
0: Absolutely, I was just listening to uh, U.S. Air Force. I forget his exact title, but Morley Stone. He um, he worked a lot in the uh, human performance side. I think he was even part of DARPA for a while. But um, I asked him the question. It was a curveball because it was wasn't directly aimed you know at what we were talking about that day but you know we talk about this hiring crisis at the moment and it was interesting because it kind of talked about what you said i think 80% of the the military are you know generational and i said you know what do you think is is one of the reasons um and he said 20 years of war and i was like how can you argue with that you know if if dad uncle who you know sister mother whoever it was didn't just serve but they were literally deploying over and over and over again it's like i talk a lot about the fire service at the moment where these guys are working 56 hours a week 80 hours with mandatory where you you know seven thirty in the morning the phone rings you're about to go home they're like no you've got to stay for another day that comes at a cost and so i think now is the time we really kind of envelop our military our first responders and be like okay you've been through hell how can we start kind of you know looking at a slightly different lens and giving you more rest and recovery. And also, I mean, from from a, a civilian looking at the military, you talked about World War II. I just interviewed two Iwo Jima veterans last week, and it was phenomenal. Very different conflict, conflict than Afghanistan or Iraq. So how, as a nation, can we ensure that we only send our boys and girls away when it's absolutely necessary and we make sure that there isn't a a pull from industries that make a lot of money we're in we're at war you know that balance i think is a very important conversation especially now as you said with the information age that we're in yeah i'm
1: not sure that's way above my pay grade but my personal feeling is when you have the same folks giving and giving and giving um there's some who think that if we had a draft there probably would be a different thought about sending our men and women to war because then anybody's family member is eligible or a candidate or could be sent. So when there isn't a draft, when there's only those who want to serve, who have signed up to serve, you know, for certain families who have not had military service, and and that's not, again, as I said, it's not for everybody. They're not concerned about it as much. Now, they con- they're concerned because it's American, fellow Americans going, but maybe for their immediate family, they know that nothing is going to affect their family. But when you know that your family members in harm's way, you just feel different about it. You've, you follow the news a little bit more. You're a little bit, you're a lot more concerned about world politics and that the um, potential pull of having American military folks get engaged, because once that engagement starts, when does it stop? And uh, the same folks who have been serving and who have been giving will continue to have to give and when, does they, when do they hit their mental breaking point and their spiritual and their physical breaking point? You can't keep pushing person out there over and over and over and think you're going to get the same result. And that's what I often think about, particularly police or firefighters who have to see horrific car crashes or fires a few times a week. When does that psychological damage say, I've hit my my fill? For some, it's. It's two years for some, it's 20. And for some, I'm out within six months because this is not, I didn't call for that part of the job. I wanted to protect and defend. I didn't want to see such horrific things, uh, especially if you're not trained to deal with some of those things that you have to see on a daily basis. And so um, spreading the, spreading the wealth and some aspects, if more and more people had to play a part of protecting and serving our country, I think there would be a different way of uh, how people think about the call to fight, call to send our troops in, because now your family member might be a part of that. Your son, your daughter, your father, your mother might be going as well. And um, that's my personal thought. Now there's just lots of research to go through. And um, I just know that people are tired and those who keep serving Can you imagine you've joined the military and you've retired and we're still at war? Like you've gone, the first group in the history of our country to say, I joined at this time, I ended at this time, and we were still at war. And you don't know anything different, especially if you're a um, special force member or someone, or you're a pilot, you're a navigator, you're you're a maintenance worker, where you're always going. In some aspects, it might be a bit difficult not to be so uh, fired up all the time because that adrenaline, that that hypervigilance gets you through it. And could you imagine after 20 years of that, now you're asked to go sit at a job where you might be in a cubicle at a desk, or you might, you know, uh, the person who is the youngest, maybe not the most diplomatic or best skilled or with their kindest words, is the owner, the CEO, the president, and they're saying things to you that without respect or, or uh, they lack discipline and you almost want to, you got some choice words back, but because this <laughs> is your job and your profession, you don't do it. And, and I think that is a difficult time. Even my wife, when I when I got out, she said, sometimes you might have some tough times, the adjustment because I was in 26 years and I thought it was it was awesome. It was just some days you really think like, look at the cool things I get to do by serving our country. And if you haven't had that experience, you might not understand the military the way that some of us who have served or firefighters have. But uh, to get back to your question, I think if if we were to equally distribute the um, ability for all of us to have a part of serving our country and those who we all had a, a role to help protect our country and defend our freedom, I think there'd just be a different thought on how um we think about sending our men and women to war
0: i couldn't agree more and i've never heard it put that way specifically but i don't need the research you just sold me on it 100 percent. and it kind of mirrors uh sebastian junger was on recently again um and he always talks about national service and he said it doesn't always have to be military not everyone out there is going to be a good war fighter but you know whatever it is some sort of volunteerism some sort of community so that you are investing in your country and you have the gratitude that seems to be missing in some areas at the moment so and i but but the idea that anyone's kids could be sent i think was is a great great uh, cautionary element and i think uh, sebastian was talking about i think it was the iroquois tribe they have a a leader for peace and a leader for war and i love that idea you know because if you're kind of a warmonger and you're sending other people's children Where's the checks and balances? But if you have someone who's a great diplomat during peacetime, and then God forbid, it's time to be the hammer now. Now you you enact that, and then all those well trained young men and women go do what they got to do. But in the meantime, you do everything in your power to to be you know to use diplomacy and and have it you know uh, a force that's that's a um, what's the right word? Oh my goodness, I'm blanking now. Um, you're dissuading other nations from causing any trouble, but you're also not Team America, World Police, that kind of you know middle ground there.
1: But uh, while you were mentioning that, I thought um, some of the best military folks I've seen have been immigrants because they come here understanding what America provides for them. They understand what it has been on the other side, depending on what their country was like. So they come here with the opportunity to have um, the only thing that limits them is themselves. It's their own hard work, their own drive, their own discipline. Because in America, um, I was a congressional liaison and I worked, I, I would travel with Trent Lott, former senator from Mississippi, and he said, in America, everything is possible. That you really can dream something outrageous and it can happen here, where if you're born in certain countries, it just won't happen. If you're born in the caste system, if you're born in the mountains of a certain country and you you're you're next in line to man that family farm that has been a generational type thing. You know, your dad did it. His dad did it. Now it's your turn. You just can't leave it. But um, I thought, you know, meeting some young folks who come from different countries, they're so proud of the uniform. They're so proud to be a part of it. And uh, one or two, uh, let's see, about two years ago, I was at the white house and we were, we were watching the fireworks and there was these, um, Three or four girls, and they were—they weren't crying. There was just tears, and they're looking up, and they're looking up, and they're—I'm thinking something's wrong. I hope someone's not sick. Well, they were so proud because wherever they were from, they were saying, "Could you imagine? You know, we're from country X that we are at the White House. We're watching fireworks. We have the ability to do this. And who would think that's possible?" I'm thinking that is so cool. I wish more Americans in some aspects would think the same. But you got to be proud of where you're
0: from. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think these conversations this is the point is you've also got to have the courage to say this is a beautiful country and these are the things that are, you know, are not going so well. Let's right. challenge right. this. You you're a patriot when you do take up, you know, some sort of uh issue and try and be part of the solution that's not being un-american it's being American. oh yeah
1: it's um chappy james general chappy james he would say you know while we have lots of problems and issues here at america i'll still take her to the dance and so you just figure it out you know you keep pushing and while there are still lots of hardships and sometimes you think things are going in reverse i look at kids again on the sport field and in schools and i'm thinking they got it right they're not thinking about how tall you are, or what your weight is, or what your color is, or what your, can you do X? Can you kick a ball? Can you catch a ball? Are you good in history? Can you sew? Can you cook? If so, come to my tribe, be a part of this. I think it's sometimes us, the adults, who sometimes disrupt that purity and that gentle and kindness that a lot of kids often have. And I also think kids have it tough too, because social media is a bear that I didn't have to deal with, that I think sometimes... For their social connection and for their mental health um it'd be good to turn it off for a while
0: absolutely well i want to be mindful of your time but i want to make sure that we do talk about transcend and the transcend foundation before i let you go so how did you come across ernie and then how did you ultimately find yourself on the board
1: so transcend was introduced to me by a friend of mine dan solomon we've been friends for about 30 years and he runs mr olympia and he's the He's responsible for muscle and fitness um, online, and he provided me my column "Fit to Serve," which is the uh, top column in the world for physical fitness and um, first responders, military, and the importance of physical activity. We have about 18 million followers, and uh, we're, we're approaching 100 stories that we've told through my uh, with my friend um, Roger Roger Lockridge, who writes the column for the most part. Um, He introduced me to Ernie because Ernie was a military person. um, uh, He was in the army and um, lived here in Virginia at one time. And Ernie was coming up with a company called Transcend, which was providing peptides and uh, blood test work uh, and all these other things that would help optimize the health and fitness of not just military members, but all members. But he had a specific um, drive and specific mission to help those who served our country because since he had gone through hardships since he had fought for our country since he also had had some health issues he understood the importance of providing the services and and the key part of this is he provides this through his foundation or him and his wife jen they pay for it out of their own pocket so when we help military members there is no cost for them the cost for them is to take the blood test to um, listen to the physicians who prescribe you know, certain medications that might be helpful to you, um, but out-of-pocket costs are none. Now, maybe if you continue the treatments, I mean, he can't help every single person, but he does do as much as he can. He provides it. And our mutual friend, Brendan, is the, um, he's the executive director of it. And I'm the vice president of our foundation where we are trying to do an outreach to military folks. We want to help support them and show them that your service was important, but now how do we give you um, not a handout, but a hand up? You know, you might need a little bit of help right now. You might need help uh, with your hormones. You know, as you know, the stress and the cortisol levels of our men and women who serve and especially are are in combat zones is extremely high. So they may have difficulties with um, the hormonal balance. They might have problems conceiving children And again, going through blood tests and having medical expertise, this is not shoddy stuff. This is not stuff that we're just done um, by bro science. This is real science. This is by real physicians, real doctors, helping these folks out. If we can find something that can help you be a better, more mobile, more active, more uh, connected person, then that's our goal is to help you do that. So we do different charities. We raise funds because, again, the folks who need help don't have the money often to do this and you know what you find the magic is once you help somebody and they get back on their feet or they get they get to a different level of success or they're able to make it they're the first person to turn around and give and donate and help you because they know what it meant to get that help so they want to give back and help support those and so our goal in 2024 is to not be limited by funds to To the amount of help and um, support we can give. We will do all we can to make sure that the men and women who serve our country have friends and allies and and Transcend and the Transcend Foundation to get them the help they need. Sometimes it might be just an ear, too. We who have gone, who have served, those who have fought in combat, they understand. And sometimes just having somebody who understands and just has um, using these two things instead of this one thing. Sometimes just listening is an important thing of getting somebody to the next level and getting them to where they need to be. So it's an awesome organization. We'll be doing more. And often that the thing with Ernie, we have to slow him down because he'll keep trying to say, what else can I do? What else can you do? And same with Brandon. He he will keep searching and finding and you can't help everybody, but we can do the most we can. And then we hope we can inspire and motivate other companies and other organizations to do their part. Because when we all do something, Big things can happen. We can't just depend on the same folks to do, you know, everything, just like we can't just depend on the VA or our Congress or the president. We, If we all chip in a little bit, we'll make a lot more progress. So um, salute to those folks at the Transcend Foundation, because we got big goals, big hopes, big dreams ahead of us, and we're going to make it happen.
0: When I came across Transcend, which was initially going around the world with Brendan and 7x, um... Immediately the penny dropped. And, and every sponsor I got on the show is something that I use and just, you know, would look someone dead in the eye and say, This is this is what you need. And what I'd noticed was a pendulum shift from, you know, a few years ago, a firefighter would go into his doctor and be, oh, you know, your, your testosterone is fine because it was 253 and their scale for the doctor was 250 to 950. Oh, you're fine. Then, you know, people start realizing, oh, this scale is from almost dead at 80-year-old to, you know, high school footballer. Um, a 30 year old firefighter shouldn't be down there, but then you had the predatorial men's clinics popping up everywhere. And then, uh, like you said, the bro science, the kind of, you know, gym locker room, you know, black uh, underworld stuff as well. And so to me, it was like, okay, well, this is, this is the organization that I think people need to know about, need to go to. and, And the people listening in the first responder professions, sleep deprivation destroys their chemistry, their biochemistry. Now, in an ideal world, we change their shifts, we give them more rest and recovery, and a lot of them are going to have huge results. So, you know, but then on the flip side, um, for some people, it's going to happen very soon. A local department on the street is about to change to the work schedule. It's going to be massively beneficial for them, but a lot of people, it's going to be, you know, years. So, in the meantime, okay, who can we send people to? I transitioned out five years ago. Um, and did my blood work, my testosterone actually has not been bad. And my apparently my growth hormone is really good. Um, I don't know if that means anything, but I'm like, yeah, but I'm still not feeling great, you know? Um, and it's 14 years of getting my ass kicked on shifts. And so I'm on peptides. I'm not on TRT, but I'm on peptides and um, a few other supplements. And it's been amazing. Like my joints have stopped aching as much because it wasn't injury. It was inflammation, my gut biome, the brain fog um and so this is what's so exciting you know transcend as a company whether you go through foundation whether you do it out of pocket it's military run you know you've got this beautiful altruistic arm and i've seen how much don't ernie donated just to 7x it's actually
1: veteran run it's veteran run because the military doesn't you said military run. oh i'm
0: sorry I, I, i just want
1: for your listeners so that they can understand that this is not the department of defense running this organization it's it's veterans
0: who are running the organization. Thank you for correcting me. I don't, sure, I, think, sure. I wasn't thinking when I was saying that word. Um you know, so you've got this trustworthy um organization with a hugely altruistic arm. There is no better one. So I'm not doing some QVC sales pitch. I'm using it myself. It's working amazing and I love the people sure. that work there.
1: Yes, and I, and I also think that uh I'm having more and more discussions with with those who are active duty because if there is a way, now let's go back Bro science does have some some validity because I remember years ago when creatine first came out, uh, I think a lot of folks in the military were concerned about kidney issues and muscle tears and dehydration, but the bro science in the gym was showing that tra- or dramatic increases in strength. And for the people that I personally knew, the only distress they were having was a bit of GI gut, like sometimes they would take too much creatine. Or the the quality of the creatine was lower so they might have you know some issues with diarrhea or something but um this was in healthy populations of course but I, I think you know there might be something for the department of defense and firefighters and law enforcement to look at into peptides in the future to see what they can do because if i am an active duty person and i am destroying my body i would like the biggest arsenal under my belt being supplements and sleep and mental health and exercising and all these things that I can use. And if there are some supplements that the the physicians and the evidence proves that these will be um, uh, beneficial to my success, then it's something I'm going to take. And this is where I go back to the disruptor. I would think, you know, probably a lot of folks in the military might not say, we're not ready for um, peptides yet. However, there was some bold doctors and physicians back in the early 90s and said creatine is so so researched, it's probably the most researched supplement in the world where, you know, I think Olympic athletes are using it for the most part without any issues that maybe we need to look forward. Maybe peptides aren't something we're going to use in 2024, but maybe with more research, uh, data scientists involvement in 2028, 2029, this might be something that those who require them and who need them, maybe the military might have a role. Now, this is no military affiliation. You're saying it's my thoughts, my personal thoughts. But again, trying to make people healthier, more fit, more mobile, more active, we might have to start looking beyond what we thought, what the norm was, because the norms uh, are going to be changing. And the only thing that is constant is change. So when we keep thinking that how do we get better, bigger, faster, stronger, Maybe some of the things that are down the pipeline and some things that we're not so sure about now with more research, more um, uh, evidence that we might find that they may not are, but may be beneficial.
0: Absolutely. Well, you talked about your friend at Muscle and Fitness. Um, just very quickly, the reason I'm an American firefighter is because of Muscle and Fitness. So I was told as a young boy that I was colorblind. I could never be a firefighter. And I want to be a firefighter. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a stuntman when I was young. And uh, very long story, very short. Years go by, I become a man. moved to America after marrying an American. And then I'm literally in London about a week before I'm going to get on the plane to to immigrate here. And it's a muscle and fitness uh, episode with a Miami-Dade firefighter. And they're talking about I'm he's in good shape, but, you know, the role of a firefighter paramedic in America and it just kind of lit a fire. And I'm like, I'm not bloody colorblind. I can see colors. I'm not perfect, but I can and so I ended up challenging the test and had a, a full career. So, you know, I've I've read that for a long time, and I will literally attribute that to my realization that you know I need to challenge again to be the disruptor on this medical thing. Um I was talking to Brendan, and one of the things that he said as well is that in the bodybuilding community, which obviously Muscle and Fitness and Flex, that's that's a large group that's reading that. And we've seen this obviously in, in in wrestlers and some of the other um, types of people that are also bodybuild is the the lack of longevity, a lot of disease and large hearts, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I know Phil Heath is a big part of um, Transcend now as well from purely the bodybuilding world. Now, talk to me about Transcend and trying to trying to remove um, the not even some of the bro science is the wrong word, the, the locker room purchases and trying to get the men and women that want to get into the sport of bodybuilding also on the the healthy clinical you know trt and peptides and the things that they're trying to get
1: so knowledge and education uh they're not even saying that use our products but maybe get educated in this if you're going to do um the more you know the stronger the fitter the better you'll be so if you haven't had blood work done before get it done if you don't know about certain things here are resources here are websites here um um sites that they're not providing information because the uh, source is paying for it. You want, again, evidence-based research that tells you why or why you should not be involved in things. And it's very tricky now because there's so much information out there. There's great information and there's horrible information. And the horrible information sometimes could be disguised so well that you think it's coming from a reputable source. But it's not so you have to keep digging now i personally go to health.gov i go to the cdc i go to the american heart association um i find different sources that i think are pretty reputable but uh that is at my age being 17 18 19 20 you're looking for big arms you're looking for a chest because you want to be that guy at the beach at the club at the gym i get it and that's part of maturation lots of us go through that but now, I think you want to make sure that you're doing it right, because what you want to do now is not make mistakes in your teen and early 20s that will affect you when you're 40, 50, and 60. And so, um, you know, I would think a lot of the pro-hormone, not pro-hormone, the, the, the peptides and the TRT treatment might be for folks who are a bit older. Uh, um, I'm not an expert in this. That's why they have physicians on, on on their staff who are the experts. And so my questions, I just go ask them. But I do think that I don't want to eliminate any um, possibilities because I think, oh, that's dangerous or that's bad. Well, let me find out what the science says. Let me find out what the research says. And if it's beneficial or helpful to me, my friends, our troops, our firefighters and all, then here is the opportunity to be educated about it. Now, it's up to you to make the decision, you and your physician. And, uh, you know, I can't do that for you, but just want to provide clean easy to research, evidence-based sources to make the best decisions because you only have one body. And as I mentioned to you earlier, there's a a German phrase I often use that the person with their health has a thousand wishes. The person without their health has but one. And so the goal is to keep you in the game, in the fight as long as possible so that you can do cool things, laugh, have great memories, smile, and um, enjoy, enjoy your life. Enjoy mobility.
0: Enjoy the freedom. Well, that was a perfect place to end. So I'm sure people are intrigued and would love to connect, reach out, et cetera. Where are the best places online to find you?
1: Uh, My Instagram. And so I don't know it off the top of my head. So I'll send you the link because um, I (laughs) have idea actually what it is, but Instagram and LinkedIn. So I'll send you both those links, which will be in your show, uh, show notes. Or they can also look at our, our fit to serve column on musclefitness.com. Uh, we were, we're telling the story of those who serve our country and we're, we're going to be working more with firefighters and police officers, and we'll be telling your story in the near future there, James. So we look forward to sharing that, but, um, um, thank you for the opportunity and for all those who serve our country and those who support them. Thank you very much for that. And, uh, again, to those, those, uh, PE teachers and those phys ed teachers, thank you for what you're doing for our country and, uh, it all makes a difference. It all helps us live amazing lives and do the best we can. So thank you. Thank you for this resource. It's a very, very powerful sur- source that you have here. And I'm sure that you're inspiring, motivating, and, and helping people reach their full potential. So uh, don't shortcut yourself, James. You're doing cool things. So thank you.